Welcome to the Diplomen Podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Eknekci, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the women, peace, and security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diplomen Podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut, and is made possible by the generous support of UN Women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diplomen Podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Dr. Rubam Haysen in this new episode of the Diplomen Podcast. Rubam is an economist, she's a development practitioner and a community mobilizer. Ruba is the founder of Sawa, where she established it after the Syrian war started to work on the ground with Syrian refugees. A Lebanese-Syrian peace builder, Ruba has been listed on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for policy and law in 2017. Ruba, welcome to the Diplomen podcast. Thank you, Karma, and thank you for hosting me at this amazing podcast, which also hosts uh, incredibly uh, inspira inspirational women. Ruba, let's talk a little bit about your work. First, can you tell us what a community mobilizer is? Uh, we live in societies and communities that has uh, a lot of resources. So, um, you know, whether it's environmental resources, uh, human resources, um, uh, financial resources, but oftentimes these resources remain untapped. And the reason is because people aren't inspired enough, they don't feel like they belong to a cause, they don't feel like they have the passion to change uh, the community where they live in. However, I've noticed throughout the years that um, it's very easy to tap into these resources and make people realize that you don't have to look very far when you're trying to achieve something, when you're trying to um, follow your dreams. You can tap into uh, your community, you can tap into your uh, friends, uh, the resources that are around you, even before going into the international community and others. So a community mobilizer is basically someone who comes into a community and try to um, awaken the potential uh, and the social energy that's in the community towards a certain cause or a certain dream that the community is trying to establish, basically. But as a practitioner, you started as an economist. So I'm curious to see what drove you into this field of peace building. You know, what made you wake up one morning and say, yeah. you know, this is what I want to do. Uh, economics is a very, very good base for people. It allows you to understand interactions in the society at a micro level and at a macro level. Um, but I, since I was younger, I was always, uh, you know, touched or, uh, you know, uh, appalled by the injustices in our societies. Uh, you know, whether we look at the Arab world, whether you look at Armenia, at, you know, all the, the countries around us, um, uh, there are so many injustices around us. And we grow, grew up t talking about Palestine, we grew up uh, listening about yani, uh, memories of our parents during the civil war. So uh, that's what drove me into the work that I do. And uh, when the Syrian revolution started, I was watching TV and I heard about the first 40 Syrian families that crossed into Lebanon. Yes, and you helped the first 40 families. Indeed, indeed. Because I thought, you know, we are communities where we are known for generosity, big feasts, food, and to suddenly see your own people on the ground, that, you know, was the main uh, incentive for me to start uh, this kind of work. 
But let's be honest, you know, in Lebanon, um, the, Syrian refugee, the Syrian refugee situation, you know, triggered uh, a lot of, um, I'd, I want to say racism, you know, a lot of different sentiments. And this means you probably face a lot of challenges on the ground, yeah. you know, whether with host communities. And, and this is a reality, you know, we have to, we have to speak about it. Do you feel like, you know, the, the, you spoke about generosity. I mean, how did you really find uh, the Lebanese host communities uh, in the beginning and now? Because I feel things evolved over indeed, time. Indeed, indeed, Karma. That was what I was going to say. When we first started working, there wasn't a single Lebanese family who would agree to buy their kids, for example, something for Eid and not buy the, the, the family next door, the Syrian family. I remember in Akkar, the, 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 yani the poorest communities of, of, of Lebanon, every household was open and hosted a Syrian family. But don't forget that it's been more than 10 years, 11 years now, and the Lebanese people are, are facing challenges themselves, not to mention the way that the Syrian refugee issue has been politicized by politicians as a divisive factor. So I, maybe call me naive, but I believe in that people are inherently good, inherently generous. I agree with this you. This is why you have to you know, always remind them of, of this uh, good uh, traits that are inherently in them. Um, so I feel like, yes, it's evolved. Uh, Syrians today are living a very difficult life in Lebanon. Uh, but so are the Palestinians, so are the Lebanese. You find even racism, I don't know what you call it, but between Lebanese themselves. Yani we live in a very uh, divided. divided and sensitive, uh, uh, you know, there are so many points of tension in our communities. So yes, I'm tiptoeing around all of these sensitivities to try to make out the best we can within the, the circumstances. And Sawa, tell me a little bit more about this. So when you started it, how many uh, were you? How has it grown? Yeah. What are the main activities that this organization so we started as a group of uh, friends. I was 22 year old at the time. I'm not going to say how old you can <laughs> do the math. But uh, we started as a small initi initiative just to uh, distribute what was needed. But it grew eventually to become owned by the community. So it's a, an organization for the community, by the community. Mm -hmm. We only do the, the difficult work of uh, the bureaucratic stuff, but it's mainly driven by the community uh, in order for them to unleash their agency and ownership over their own lives. So yes, we Unfortunately, we couldn't get out of the basic needs that are needed uh, because we are still living in hard con uh, circumstances. But uh, the work evolved into, um, you know, um, supporting individuals to um, unleash their potential, uh, to uh, get trainings, to start their own initiatives, to do advocacy work at the local level and link up to the international level, uh, uh, to uh, uh, mediate between them, them, the NGOs, the host communities, the municipality, and to really be become agents of their own lives and, and of their future mainly. This is actually, you put your finger on a very important point, uh, how to, to take this community work uh, and elevate it to the international community, to sort of the higher level of decision making. I mean, I know uh, we call this uh, track three uh, mediation or track three diplomacy when we work in the community, on the community level. Uh, but you briefed the Security Council, you briefed the United Nations Security Council on the work that you do. So somewhere, you know, you were able to take that work and present it on an international multilateral level to, um, you know, decision makers. So how was that experience? 
so here there are two, two points. The point is, the first point is about uh, diplomacy and talking about politics because usually uh, we always hear politics and diplomacy and mediation and we often think about you know, men in suits, wearing ties, people who don't <laughs> look like us as women or even like the community, you know. Um, whereas there is daily, daily, the day-to-day -day politics or politics with a small p, the, the, the interactions of people are inherently political. And these are the things that make any political agreement hold on the ground. Uh, we've seen examples, for example, let me talk about Bosnia or Colombia, where yes, a peace agreement was signed at some higher level, but if there is no acceptance of this peace agreement on the ground in the community, then this peace agreement is only a piece of paper. It doesn't mean anything on the ground. And people on the ground are negotiating day in and day out. Um, let's say in Syria they are negotiating with um, armed groups, they are negotiating with uh, de facto powers that are on the ground, uh, with the Turkish authorities in some po at some point with the Americans, they are negotiating with um, the municipality here in Lebanon, they are negotiating with the NGOs, with the security agencies, with the security agencies, they are negotiating with, uh, women are negotiating with their husbands to leave the house, you know, so there, there are all these kinds of uh, mediations happening and this is indeed what I was trying to talk about at the Security Council, uh, shedding the light about uh, women mediators and I wish one of these women was invited in, in my place uh, to talk at the Security Council but it's a, a long process to be selected but you know uh, these women um, uh, uh, we have to recognize them as local peace mediators, as local media community mediators on the ground. Um, about the, 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 the UN Security Council, you know, after all this, these years, uh, we lost our faith. We lost our faith in the system, in the Security Council, uh, which did not stop genocides when they were happening, which uh, did not interfere when uh, missiles and, and, and shelling was on top of people's heads. Um, but I feel I felt proud because it's about representation, not in the sense of I'm elected to represent my people at the Security Council, no, but there will be other women uh, other young ladies. You're paving the way, you're paving the yes, way. Yes, they are looking and they are saying, okay, she's a woman, uh, she's a mother, uh, she's wearing hijab, she's Muslim, and still she made it, she didn't negotiate her identity, and, sh and she's there. So maybe I can be there too and do more than what she did. This is what it meant for me above anything else. So, I mean, in addition to everything you said, you're also very young. <laughs> and so um, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the challenges that you face? I mean. Can you tell us of a story, of an anecdote that yeah. you, 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 that happened to you where you thought, wait a minute, you know, this is a little bit uh, discriminating yeah. against me, yeah. you know, had I been uh, a, a man or a male, this would have not happened to me. Yeah. Actually, you just reminded me of an episode. We were at uh, the UN headquarters in New York and we, it was me and my colleague. He was going to brief everyone about the human rights situation. Um, and I was going to brief them about the humanitarian situation. And that meeting was with a European w diplomat, and she was a woman. And um, we went into the meeting, and um, she greeted him. She gave him her card, and she asked him what he wanted to drink, and she didn't even look at me. Um, she probably thought I was a secretary or something. And this is coming from a woman. <laughs> exactly. Yes. From a woman of a country, yeah. yeah, from a country which, you know, talks about gender equality and all of that. Um, and then she started asking him, she did a long introduction, started asking him about the situation. And this is where I, I say that we really need um, allies with us, even men allies, that 
you know, and, and we need to talk about these challenges so that men, sometimes they want to be our allies, but they don't know that we face this, or they know, but they don't. But when we push them, because I, I kind of, uh, you know, did something under the table to, to tell him, like, you know, she's, she's not even recognizing my presence. And this is where he said, by the way, this is Dr. Raba, she's the one who is briefing you and I'm only here with her to accompany her. So he kind of, wow. I was yeah. very young, so I didn't know how to fend for myself mm -hmm. at the time. But you face these situations all the time. And um, if there are any young women watching this podcast, I tell them, you know, just believe in yourself and um, just hang in there. Um, if, if you are prepared, if you know your content, uh, if you know what you're doing, eventually they have no other choice but to recognize your presence. It takes time, it takes courage, but um, w other women paved the way for me, and I hope we are also Karma. Yeah. You I hope so too. Yeah. I yeah. hope, I mean, yeah. this is why we're doing what we're doing, so yeah. that we can tell the story, we can provide a narrative for you to tell your version of the story, because, you know, it's the version of the story that counts. Uh, for, for so long, we've been hearing only one very male-dominated uh, uh, version. And, and today we want to hear uh, yours and of women on the ground. Um, let me ask you this. In terms of uh, growing in this, in this peace-building field, in the women, peace, and security um, field, what do you feel are some of the uh, uh, challenges that are, um, or barriers, that are still not allowing us to be at the top level. I mean, the community work is very important. Uh, again, I'm, I'm definitely, the whole point of this is to shed the light on the community uh, peace-building work. Uh, but somewhere, how do we tie this work to track two? Uh, how do we tie it to track one to the, to the higher level? Because I feel like there's a sort of like a disconnect. Yes. And you spoke about building alliances. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, uh, we, we've, we've heard a lot of women say, yes, we have women in the Council of Ministers, but they don't really represent the women of my country. They do not understand our challenges. They do not understand the, the complexities of, yes. of what we are facing, the challenges we are facing. And so how can we actually build that bridge uh, as, uh, as peace builders? I think, you know, uh, Kerma, I think we need to change uh, the way we are defining leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, because oftentimes, if you, if you are a woman, you feel like, in order for me to succeed and arrive to this point, I have to become, um, you know, uh, uh, more cold, I have to become... Adopting masculine traits. Absolutely, you know, and I have to become, uh, you know, I have to prove myself so much that I, I, I lose the humble aspect of my personality, I would lose the compassion aspect. I'm fighting so many battles to arrive there that at some point I can't do it all. I lose touch with the local communities. And you know, these kind of things where women connect to each other, talk to each other, um, rely on each other, um, because I, 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 I may not want to be at the top level, but I have the resources to support women at the top level, to link up with women. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, um, uh, 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 women at the top, they have to also, uh, if they had a chance once and twice and three times, uh, for example, to um, uh, be at a certain place, maybe they can start 
um, nominating other women to be in their place. Maybe we need to take a collective decision that any council of ministers, any you know meeting that's a high-level meeting, uh, a political meeting, if there isn't a specific number of women, then we will not be there. Mm -hmm. So to realize that um, our benefit collectively is stronger or more important than our benefit uh, individually. Um, and, and because there are so many limited resources for women, a lot of women are, aren't like that. You know, we always hear like women are the enemies of women. Uh, because we are set up against so much, you know, we have to fight for our presence, for our seat at the table. We have to fight for other men to take us seriously. Uh, probably in order for us to go to this meeting, uh, we had to uh, beg our husbands to stay with our kids because of segregation of labor within the household. So we have already so many things that we are fighting. So I think be more gentle towards one another and support one another in, in all of these aspects. Ruba, how do you see the future of Syria? How do you see the future of Syrian women? Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult today to imagine what the future of Syria will be like because every time we hit rock bottom, there's even worse things that are happening. Uh, um, it's a very grim situation. It's a very uh, the majority of Syrians today and the majority of Syrians at the age of the productive age are outside Syria. You know, uh, everyone left. Uh, so um, I cannot imagine the future of Syria without its people. Um, so uh, we need people to believe in in Syria and for, for them to come back. We need to tap into the diaspora elements of our community. Um, I, I believe in a in a in a Syria in a democratic free Syria, um, one that um, respects human rights violations. Uh, just yes, uh, respects human rights. Sorry. Uh, just yesterday, uh, uh, one uh, detainee was released after 11 years, uh, 10 and a half years in prison. Uh, simply for being a pharmacist, uh, he was taken uh, to, to, to prison. Uh, so I cannot imagine this Syria. This is not our Syria. Uh, but today something was broken. Uh, people aren't scared anymore. And they are trying to reimagine their country. So I think collectively we can reimagine it. And you cannot reimagine it without half of the society. Um, so women will play an integral part. And they are already playing an integral card, part because they are the ones who, who are left behind. Demographically today, Syria consists of more women than men because of all the challenges, men who died, men who emigrated. Um, so we need to continue working with these women and supporting them so that they can achieve the vision that they see for their country. But what is it that gives you hope and motivation? I mean, you know, in this, uh, in this field, we're always, uh, uh, we're always trying to motivate ourselves. You know, the, uh, the, the, the rewards are limited yeah. in a sense, yeah. Yeah. you know. Uh, you wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, I'm going to keep doing what I do because... Yeah. Sometimes I, see, I say when I go to an education center and I see these tiny little hands, you know, drawing or writing, I feel like this gives me motivation, this little, these little fingers. But then I realize that three years down the line they will be selling tissues at a crossroad. You know, and that gives me demotivation. Um, but really, it's it's the community. It's the small acts of kindness. It's the fact that when we distribute a food basket, they will invite you to the tent to drink coffee. Um, it's um, it's also my own children, my two boys. Uh, you know, Ahmed and Omar thinking, thank you, and your two boys, and you know, our children thinking that uh, we want something better for them. So we will do the best we can. And someone told me something once. He said, uh, "You are not God." So indeed, we are not God. We will not change everything. We cannot be in control of everything. But 
we do what we can and we hope for the best, I think. How, does, how is the, the global situation today, uh, you know, feeding into the, uh, the work that you are doing? I mean, climate change, uh, the food security or the food insecurity issues, um, the war, you know, in, in Europe. Uh, I mean, uh, first Syria was headline news, then Afghanistan was headline news, then, I mean, Yemen, and then Afghanistan, and then now everything dropped off the radar. Yeah. And the whole world is focused on on Ukraine. Um, you have, you know, donor fatigue, the COVID crisis, uh, all these intertwined. You know, how can we still keep our priorities on uh, on the international stage? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what you're saying is very true, and it, it it goes back to the first question you asked me about community mobilizing because. We cannot, um, we cannot rely on international support forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you've studied development, I've studied, we know that at some point the donors will pack their bags and move on. And We're know, seeing it happen. We're live. seeing it happen and there will be uh, people who look more like them and who watch Netflix and who have cars who will take the priority because they are more worthy of, 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 of people's attention. And, um, so this is why uh, building local resources and 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 you know um, uh, building sustainable pathways in the community is very important. But this can't be enough because already you know we don't have enough resources. The community is collapsing. To continue to talk about uh, Syria, about your cause, continue talking about it, and even on days where you feel like um, I can't see the result of of my of what I'm what I'm doing, continue talking about it. Um, and, and then also believe that, you know, the world is made up of interconnected circles. So, um, uh, you know, if, if you support your community, you are also helping refugees in Ukraine. You are also helping uh, people in the U.S. Because at the end of the day, our world is interconnected. And if people um, voted in the U.S. and if Trump wasn't president at some point, maybe things would have been different. Uh, if, if, you know, so everything is somehow interconnected. So uh, just do the work and um, don't get... Uh, don't overthink about the big picture. Uh, it's important to continue talking, to continue advocating, uh, to do the politics at the high level, uh, but not to let it discourage you or affect uh, your incentive uh, at a local level. So, Rubam Haysen, in 10 years, will you still be doing what you're doing? I don't know, but I will hopefully still be doing something I'm passionate about. Uh, maybe it will be in this field, maybe it will be somewhere else. Um, but I hope I will continue to be, you know, true to myself and true to my passions. I'm sure you will. Uh, you speak with so much uh, passion, compassion and, and positive energy. Um, I wish you all the best in the work that you are doing. Dr. Rubam Haysen, thank you for being a guest with us. Thank you, Diploma, and thank you, Kerma.